You're listening to Solving Climate Naturally. Join us as we unpack nature's role in tackling climate change and talk to the people leading the way. Welcome to Solving Climate Naturally, where we speak with experts and leaders at the cutting edge of natural climate solutions and help demystify this growing field. We're your hosts. I'm Kate. I'm Ina. I'm Julia. And today we have with us Tim Christofferson. It's quite a task to summarize Tim's career in just a few words, but we'll give it a try. He joined Salesforce as VP of Climate Action in May 2022, and his role focuses on nature-based solutions to climate change. Before joining Salesforce, Tim was head of Nature for Climate branch at the United Nations Environment Program, where he led the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration, which is this decade, ending in 2030. He previously worked for the Secretariat on the Convention on Biological Diversity, CBD, as well as the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, IUCN, the Danish Ministry of the Environment, and the European Commission. Finally, Tim holds a degree in forestry and forest conservation engineering from the Dresden University of Technology. Thank you so much for joining and welcome to Solving Climate Naturally. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much, Tim. And to start, we'd love to hear about your origin story. What inspired you to dedicate your career to biodiversity and nature? It's really in my DNA. I think my whole family has an affinity to nature. And I spent a lot of time as a kid in the forest around our village. And I've always been fascinated by this vibrant energy that powers an intact ecosystem, sort of this underlying life force. And that's something that I can draw a lot of energy from being in nature. Then I decided to study forest sciences when I was about 16. That was clear to me that was what I wanted to do and have dedicated my life, my career to saving nature ever since. So, And I actually also do this as a hobby. So my family and I, we live on a small farm here in Denmark and we've recently planted about 30,000 trees on one of our fields. And we're restoring the other farmland to a permaculture and agroforestry system. So I guess I'm one of those lucky people whose hobby is also their job. So it's an interesting field, especially in the last few years, so much is happening. So you've spent the majority of your career when you're not, you know, developing your own local permaculture and in international governing bodies like the IUCN, the Secretariat of the Convention on Biological Diversity, obviously the United Nations. We'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, what do these organizations do to advance this category of nature-based solutions? And what are some of their limitations? Yeah, indeed, I've spent most of my career in public service and the need for having very clear policy signals has to come from the public sector institutions, mostly, of course, from national governments. But we also need very clear policy signals from global agreements like the Paris Agreement or more recently the Global Biodiversity Framework that was adopted in December 2022. Once we have those agreements in place, we also need market signals in the sense of fiscal incentives. All of that is now shaping up fairly well. There's, of course, a lot of regulatory work left to do. But now we are almost out of time. That means we need an incredible speed and scale of transformation now. And while we continue to need scientific guidance, like from the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and definitions and standards for nature-based solutions, like from ICN, we also need now the sheer innovation 
and power and entrepreneurship of the private sector. So you, of course, joined Salesforce last year. What was it that prompted the switch to Salesforce and to the private sector more generally? And, you know, when you were thinking about where within the private sector, why was it a tech company versus maybe a company with more direct impact on land use, oceans, or other ecosystems? So Salesforce is a fascinating company. It's about a $30 billion per year revenue company, 70,000 people. We operate all over the world. And Salesforce produces data management solutions for businesses of every size, mostly around client and customer relationship management. What is unique about Salesforce is that we supply over 150,000 other companies and public sector institutions and also about 50,000 NGOs with this software that makes their organizations run. And all of these organizations have a trust relationship with us. So we speak frequently with nine of the 10 biggest banks in the world and nine of the 10 biggest agriculture companies in the world about their climate journey, their nature journey, how they should go about launching a nature positive strategy, and when Salesforce convenes our, what we call our ecosystem of customers and software partners, people come in the thousands. Our largest event is our annual event in San Francisco called Dreamforce in September. That brings together 40,000 people from across the private sector. So that convening power and that leadership role within the private sector makes Salesforce a hidden superpower in leadership for sustainability, which is one of our core values. And of course, much of what we see with nature-based solutions is a data management challenge. It's a tech challenge. If you look at the complexity of the TNFD or the task force on nature-related financial disclosures and implementing that kind of data management is also something where Salesforce can help. So I've only discovered this myself over the last few years and was so fascinated by this company and how they approach this topic that it was a really interesting combination of what I wanted to do to trigger the massive shift and mass movement in the private sector towards more climate and nature action and what Salesforce as a company needed because all the way up to our CEO, we've committed a lot to nature. We co-founded the Trillion Trees Initiative three years ago, 1T.org. Also through that, we lead with the World Economic Forum, one of the challenges under the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration to mobilize $10 billion, 200 companies towards more forest conservation restoration investments. So it was a, it's a unique uh, setting within the private sector. It's really helpful to hear your perspective on that, Tim, and I can definitely understand and it's inspiring the power of Salesforce to influence businesses at that scale. I'd love to hear a little bit more about Salesforce's own approach to its nature-positive strategy. First, explain what you mean by nature-positive, because that's a phrase that's thrown around a lot, and I want to make sure that listeners of the podcast get to hear your definition for it. But you've mentioned that sort of Salesforce's nature-positive strategy includes investing in a million tons of blue carbon credits to distributing $100 million of philanthropic capital through its ecosystem restoration and climate justice fund. So after you define nature positive, would love to hear a little bit more about the theory of change behind the set of priorities for the strategy and what is the status of those efforts today? 
So the way we describe nature positive is basically the opposite of nature negative, which is much easier to measure and is something that we all see in our everyday lives, that ecosystems are degrading. Nature positive is the point where biodiversity is recovering and ecosystems are regaining some of their natural functionality and their ecosystem services. As a company, it is not possible, in our view at least, to become nature positive. It's not useful to say this or that company is nature positive or you as an individual to be nature positive. This is an all of society effort to which we can contribute. And our contribution is our nature positive strategy for Salesforce. And there's three pillars of that strategy. The first is that we, of course, do our homework at home. We measure our own impacts and dependencies on nature. We piloted the TNFD framework and send them lots of feedback that has hopefully helped them to come to the final release of the task force guidance now in September. And we're looking at things like data center requirements for cooling and the freshwater ecosystem impacts that that has. The second pillar of our strategy is to lead global restoration at scale with now 84 other companies under the Trillion Trees Initiative and with our investments in 1 million tons of blue carbon, but also significant investments in nature-based solutions from our carbon credit purchasing, including in forests and other ecosystems. And the third pillar, probably the most impactful lever we have as Salesforce is to enable our thousands of customers to enter this complex space. Because it is complicated, we've linked our strategy to our climate action plan. For us, climate action is nature action and nature action is climate action. And our climate action plan has a very clear emission reduction targets. So nature is for us something that we do in parallel and carbon credit purchasing is something we do in parallel to our emission reductions. So the nature positive strategy has been already um, seen and downloaded by a lot of our customers. Many companies are calling us about what they should be doing, how they can learn from our lessons. We've included a lessons learned section in the strategy that hopefully helps other companies enter this space more quickly and without having to invest all that learning that clearly we had to invest in the past years. And coming back to your first point of a definition, of course, some of this is still being mapped out. There is the Science-Based Targets for Nature initiative now underway that makes very clear recommendations for each sector, what nature positive should mean. And we're involved in all those steps, but we didn't want to wait until there is perfect guidance or a perfect definition because the investments that we can already make and the measurement of our impact and dependencies, we can do that now. So the most important message here, I would say, is just get started if you're a company that is looking to do more on nature. Love that. I'd be curious to hear which of these pillars or activities within the pillars has been the most challenging to implement and maybe on the flip side, if you found any quick wins that other companies could look at. The most challenging to implement right now is a very in-depth assessment of our nature impacts and dependencies because this is new for many of our vendors as well. For example, data centers, we don't own and operate our own, but we lease data centers and 
They are used to, of course, measuring what their carbon emissions are and where their energy comes from. We shifted to 100% renewable energy across all our operations already in 2021. But they're not used to this question about water and ecosystems and nature footprints. So there's a lot of awareness raising and explaining to do. We are learning here also from what is called our sustainability exhibit. In 2021, we introduced a requirement that anybody wants to sell to Salesforce, whether it's a laptop or a phone or any other product or service, needs to have a Paris-aligned climate goal, needs to have a very clear climate action plan. And we're looking at that experience now to also have nature-related requirements for our supply chain. Key tips for other companies, I would say, Enter an association or a platform where you can learn from others and where others can learn from you. The one I recommend is the Trillion Trees Initiative, 1T.org, that is very much focused on forest ecosystems, but forest being by far the largest and most important of the nature-based solutions that can be scaled up quickly. I think it's a good place to start. And there we exchange frequently about what are good investments, how to make them, how to partner, which key developments are emerging. So join the club, so to say, or join a club at least, so that you can make sure you also have some mitigation against the risk of doing something wrong, which is possible in this field to make a mistake. Well, speaking of what it takes to join the club, you know, we'd be so curious to hear what was it like persuading stakeholders in really your peers inside Salesforce that this is a compelling strategy and you know, useful use of Salesforce's balance sheet. And then relatedly, what's it like building that pace for doing this to external parties? Are they doing it because you know, Salesforce, you know, important partner has told them to? Or what's that host of reasons that you use to build the case for them as well? The business case differs from sector to sector and even from company to company. Of course, if you're a consumer goods company, you have an inherent interest in reinvesting in your supply chain security, which will be almost 100% reliant on biodiversity. But for a tech company, the case was a little bit harder to make. The argument of our data centers and also our staff and employees and their health and well-being, depending on clean air, clean water, on nature for recreation. That was a compelling case, but it was all made much easier for Salesforce by our CEO being very committed to especially the oceans and forests. So there was not a lot of uphill struggle with the board and the executive level. And it's also helpful that within Salesforce, we have about 14,000 people of our 70,000 staff who are organized in a volunteer team called Earthforce. So these are staff who spend part of their time. Every Salesforce employee can spend up to a week per year on volunteering for a charity or an NGO of their choice. So this is paid time off in addition to your holidays that you can take. And these 14,000 Earthforce volunteers, they push the company along as well. So it's not just the top level and the C-level and the board that needed to be convinced by us, they also look at, you know, this is 14,000 of our staff who want to see us do more. That was also very helpful. And I think that exists now in every company, no matter if you're big or small, 
ask your staff and their children if you're doing enough on climate and nature and you'll probably get the answer no you need to urgently do more so this is a critical investment also in retaining and attracting the best talent and that's really helpful to hear your perspective on that you know one of the first steps for companies as you alluded to is to measure their impacts and start to just get a sense for what is their relationship to nature and how might they want to invest in that and the science-based targets for nature as you mentioned as well recently came out with their guidance for companies and you know there's the promise that maybe SBTN could be like SBTI which has gotten thousands of companies to sign up for targets on climate but it's early days for science-based targets for nature. It's still a new framework. It's challenging for companies to utilize and set those targets. It's challenging for climate, let alone for biodiversity, which has a, a lot more complexity, one could argue, than just greenhouse gases in terms of measuring what does success look like. So what do you think needs to happen for this to be a target setting methodology that is broadly useful and applicable and adoptable for folks beyond the most sophisticated companies that can have the resources to dedicate, you know, a, a FTE, a full-time employee to nature. Yeah, two things need to happen. I'll come to that in a minute. But first, I want to say that nature has one huge advantage, even though it is complex to measure. But if you compare it to efforts like climate change, everybody can relate to nature in some way, whereas CO2 is invisible gas that you can't see or smell. And it's a, very co- it's a very abstract concept to get people to work on emission reductions, which is now starting to happen at a massive scale. It's much easier to convince people to do something on nature because everybody has a relationship to nature in some way. And the two things that I think need to happen for companies to join and enter this space is the first, you mentioned that there are medium-sized companies and small companies that will not have a full-time staff on this topic, there needs to be an entry-level, no-regrets option for investments. I heard of a great case study in in Mexico, where one of the states has introduced a law that companies need to invest in nature-based solutions or pay a tax so they can choose which of the options they want to pursue. And that has triggered a massive investment flow into nature-based solutions for climate action. But it has to be easy for companies to enter the space and secure enough so that they know what they're investing in is of high quality. The second aspect that needs to happen clearly is that the costs of monitoring have to come down even as the quality of monitoring is going up. It doesn't maybe have to be all that fancy that everything is monitored by eDNA, but it has to be cost effective in the sense that remote sensing applications have to get better, come down in price, and there has to be a clear traceability of the responsibility, the impacts, dependencies of a company, and the investments and the actions they take, which of course is much more localized than it is for climate. A ton of carbon in New York is a ton of carbon in Manila, but a hectare of ecosystem in the US is not the same as a hectare of ecosystem in the Philippines. So how do you measure your local impact and then improve both your footprint on that ecosystem, but also compensate for any damage that you might be doing. So we very much want to dig into your views on the efficacy of these new regulations. But 
Yeah, first we wanted to stay on this point of the possibility of, of voluntary markets for biodiversity credits. So as you well know, and we do as well, the market is pretty much non-existent today besides some of these regulatory mitigation banking mechanisms. Do you think that biodiversity credits have a role in the future of addressing biodiversity loss? And do you think this is a market that will exist five years from now? And if so, what will it look like? Well, there's actually habitat banking in some way or form in over 40 countries. So it is a massive market, but it's very fragmented. Even at the EU level, there's no common approach and policy on biodiversity credits. Because it's mentioned in the global biodiversity frameworks uh, explicitly, there will have to be some regulation. Australia is working, for example, now on the nature repair bill and is hosting a nature positive summit next year. So that will be interesting to watch how they do this. I definitely believe that this will be a massive market in the coming years, just because it has to market based mechanisms are not the only and often not even the best mechanism to reverse nature loss. But they are one mechanism and one that we definitely need. I think this market will emerge, but we need the same things that we need in the voluntary carbon market. We need trust, transparency, scientific rigor, and some clear rules of the game. If you look at the voluntary carbon market, it actually works best where it is not completely voluntary, where you have clear standards and benchmarks that either governments or regional institutions have set. And we are luckily seeing more transparency guidance and better governance in the voluntary carbon market. So we can learn from all of this for biodiversity credits. Now, one thing to add here is that as Salesforce, we are at least at the moment, not thinking about biodiversity credits in addition to what we do in the voluntary carbon market, because for us, nature-based solutions as part of our carbon credit purchasing mean that we want to see very high quality carbon credits with very high quality biodiversity and social benefits in addition to clear additionality for the climate. So we would like to see sort of all-in-one credits and I think that's the same for many companies and even for some jurisdictions, like in the UK, where the thinking is towards the all-in-one credits. And if you look at how ecosystems function, it's, of course, not separated in a functioning forest ecosystem. What is the carbon benefit and what is the water benefit and what is the biodiversity benefit? The ecosystem, if it's well-managed, produces all of that and more. So digging a little bit, Back into the regulation conversation, you know, obviously some good news recently on the European restoration law that was just passed, huge step forward for nature in the EU. But at the same time, we know that most nature destruction and biodiversity loss is happening in the global south. And so would love your thoughts on, you know, with COP15 and with the global 30 by 30 ambitions, what actually needs to happen for that to succeed? So the EU nature restoration law was past this step in the parliament. It now still needs to be negotiated and adopted by the council. So that battle is not yet fully won, but it was a great step forward also because that will trigger massive investments across the EU. It will help us build out a multi-billion dollar nature restoration industry. And it will hopefully also increase food security. In some cases, it will even improve agricultural yields, which is something we've just seen a great report on from GIST Impact on Andhra Pradesh in India, where 
630,000 farmers now enroll in the state program on community-based natural resources management and natural farming based on principles called zero-budget natural farming. And they showed an 11% yield increase in almost the complete absence of industrial fertilizers and industrial pesticides. So that myth that we have the choice between poisoning our soils or reducing agricultural yields, that is just simply not true. And the EU nature restoration law can also help us move beyond that rationale, which we also export to the rest of the world. I think that's the link between the efforts in the EU and in the global south, that it's possible to have win-win-wins in functioning landscapes for livelihoods, for biodiversity, for the climate, with the right techniques like agroforestry, regenerative farming, permaculture. So there's, of course, clearly a link between what happens in the EU, also with the recent law to restrict import of deforestation risk commodities, and the global south. There has to be an element of equity and social justice here. But for now, I'm very happy to see that the EU is stepping up on a leadership position on, on nature restoration. Just a brief follow-up on that, um, Tim. What does you know, environmental justice and equity look like in the context of those regulations or in the context of nature-based solutions in general? What does a project or effort that is equitable look like? And maybe you can share a specific example of that. There are several elements here. And one that I want to zoom in on is the intergenerational aspect. At Salesforce, we invest a lot in something we call the ecopreneurs. So these are entrepreneurs of the future who dedicate their lives and their businesses to solving environmental challenges. And there's more and more ecopreneurs. We are now connecting about 50,000 of them through a platform called Uplink that we founded three years ago with the World Economic Forum. And we run specific challenges on Uplink for nature-based solutions. There's one just now out on forests and health. The aspects here between what is happening on the regulatory framework with the investments and the next generation is, of course, that there needs to be sufficient investment and capacity building so people can move into these roles and can also take on and work in this restoration economy that we desperately need to see worldwide. Then there is the north-south equity question. And of course, that is much more complex and complicated. But even there, we're seeing some progress recently on the loss and damage discussion. And we're seeing some progress with replenishment of the Green Climate Fund. So there are positive signals. All of that is still not happening fast enough, and it's definitely still not enough. But at least the trend is starting to move in the right direction. It will really start to move faster once we look at the target in the global biodiversity framework to shift $500 billion of harmful subsidies towards regeneration, conservation, restoration of nature. I think that is the target we all have to watch and push for because that will really be the big game changer once fiscal policies are restructured. So going back to something you alluded to in your prior answer, to some of these tensions between you know, different ideas like 
farming and food security versus nature. We'd love to hear what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions about nature-based solutions today in the public discourse that, you know, you think would be impactful if we could properly transform? Yeah, there are a couple of misconceptions and they some of them are maybe self-inflicted by our movement because we all tend to sell things as a silver bullet. And of course, there's no silver bullet for climate change. And because the way nature-based solutions were at some point communicated, not necessarily by everybody in this movement, but it was a bit of a promise of if we focus on nature-based solutions, we could solve the entire climate crisis. And I think this has led to a um, perception that we've overpromised this field. What we've in reality done is underpromise all the other things that nature-based solutions can offer, from clear drinking water to cleaner air in cities and cooler microclimates in cities and um, better ecosystem services. And that was not sufficiently communicated in this focus on climate and even within climate on a little bit carbon tunnel vision. So forests and trees, for example, are much more than a ton of carbon per tree waiting to grow and absorb CO2 from the atmosphere. Functioning forests have so many important and critical roles for our civilization and for our economy and societies that we've underplayed that role and overplayed the carbon role in communicating this a little bit. So one other misconception or at least big question in the market right now that I'd love to dig into with you, Tim, is that there's been you know higher scrutiny on avoid emission projects in general, particularly red plus projects or anti-deforestation projects after bad press for projects in The Guardian, that those projects underdelivered on their impact. And that's led to sort of a crisis of confidence for Red Plus and anti-deforestation projects overall. And, you know, there's a belief that it's hard to get those projects right, which is true, but there are really good projects out there that are making a big impact for local communities, nature, and people. But this misconception has sort of led to or contributed to increasing push for removals, and which is also important to jumpstart the carbon removal market that we need by 2050, but that increasing movement towards removals has dampened interest in the critical forest protection efforts via the voluntary carbon market, combined with, as I just mentioned, that questions around quality. So I'm just curious, what is Salesforce's perspectives on the role of ecosystem protection credits versus removal credits? Are there other ways companies could more effectively invest in ending deforestation, which the IPC says we need to do in order to meet our net zero goals, than through the voluntary carbon market? So Salesforce is a founding member of the LEAF Coalition, which is a group of governments and private sector institutions coming around the shared goal to buy high-quality forest carbon credits that are generated at the jurisdictional scale, meaning there's an entire state in Brazil or an entire province in a country that produces reduced deforestation, which also limits the risk of leakage and increases the permanence. And for us, LEAF is one of the way forwards where we can still invest in avoided deforestation and also the other forms of Red Plus, because let's remember that Red Plus also includes enhancement of forest carbon stocks, meaning restoration and in some cases reforestation. And we've made a significant commitment within the LEAF coalition, also recommend that to other companies. 
at the project level, of course, we can be grateful for scrutiny and transparency in the market, but I agree with you that it is somewhat tragic that slump in demand and also the drop in price has led to many excellent projects with very high social benefits for indigenous communities, for local communities, for biodiversity have now stalled or are in difficulties. So we would love to see more investments both in nature-based avoidance credits, but also in removals. Clearly, we've only started to scratch the surface on the availability of removals. If you look at the UN Decades launch report, there's about 2 billion hectares globally that would benefit from ecosystem restoration. And even if we just look at one subsection of forest, mangroves, less than 1% of global forest area, but there we have together with the Global Mangrove Breakthrough, identified that if we can mobilize $4 billion and we can conserve and restore an additional 15 million hectares of mangroves, that would be a massive game changer also for carbon. So we're actively looking to buy a million tons of blue carbon, but we're also supporting the Global Mangrove Breakthrough that is bringing lots of other banks, investors, governments behind the Global Mangrove Alliance and the Global Mangrove Breakthrough to make sure we trigger that big move into removals. But at the same time, we continue to invest in, in avoided deforestation as well, where it's of high quality. I'd like to maybe turn the question, turn the conversation a bit to the topic of scale, because ultimately, as you've said, nature is really a scale problem that involves us all. What do you think are the biggest barriers to scaling investment in nature-based carbon projects today? You know, in my day job, obviously, I focus really on the financing aspect and particularly challenges of capital absorption. But you've also talked about data as one of these barriers. And then specifically, would love your thoughts on where you think we are on the quality pipeline of nature-based carbon projects and some of that upstream work. The biggest barrier to more finance in the space, in my view, is the way finance works and the way our economic incentives are expected in this field. If you think of nature as an asset class, first of all, it's going to be an asset class that is very different from most other asset classes because of the very high level of social interactions with communities, with farmers, with stewards of the land or of the sea. And the favorite economic investment framework that I have is the Common Lands for Returns framework where there's a requirement for at least 20 years of investment, which, first of all, is already unheard of for most banks and investment companies and funds. Then there are four different types of returns that you have to program for. The first is financial return. So far, so good. But that's usually the only return that current financial investors see. The second is natural capital return, third is social capital return, and the fourth is inspirational capital return. So once you have that broader view of what your money should bring you back, and it's beyond only financial return, as a minimum of 20-year investment and commitment as a donor or investor, then you can start to think about large-scale, successful nature restoration. But we're very far away from that tenor, that risk profile, and that understanding in financial boardrooms. So there's a lot of investor awareness and education that still needs to happen. As a follow-up to that then, Tim, what then is the role of philanthropy or is there a role for philanthropy 
or other forms of capital or government funding that can blend or combine to enable that both the scale, but also the sort of returns profile that you've mentioned. Absolutely. And we're just exploring exactly that question in detail with our philanthropy team and coming out with a publication on that in September for New York Climate Week. We see philanthropic capital as a bit of the catalytic gold dust that you have available in the space, usually very little, but it can really unlock larger investments at scale, but often philanthropic capital is not used in that way. First of all, it's very little. It's less than 3% of global philanthropic giving goes to climate action. And we want to increase that tenfold. We have a goal with the World Economic Forum under a program called Gaia to significantly upscale climate philanthropy. And secondly, we would like to see it differently deployed because it, it can be more risk seeking or it can be less risk averse at least than mainstream finance philanthropic capital is essential for kickstarting this emerging market as is public sector capital and here coming back to the point again of restructuring fiscal incentives it is essential that we still pave the way into this asset class and for larger investments with risk tolerant capital and our 100 million ecosystem restoration climate justice fund can be deployed in that way. We are actively looking for possibilities to do that and to trigger larger investments, de-risk larger investments, inform larger investments with our philanthropy. And I just want to come back quickly to the question about pipeline. You know, one of the most common things that I hear from investors, especially in emerging markets, is that, well, we're not investing because there aren't enough investable projects. You know, I think Taken with your response to the previous question around, well, finance seems to change as well. Absolutely. But, you know, in the current system, what do you respond to the, you know, there aren't enough investable projects statement? There are definitely enough projects. It again comes back to my point, what do you call investable? And if you're talking about minimum ticket size of 10 million and 10 or of seven years, yes, there are not enough projects of that kind. But if we, I think, meet each other halfway, the financing that is seeking these kinds of projects and the projects to develop larger scale and clearer business cases, then there will be a lot of projects. Right now, we have to actively seek them, but I'm very encouraged by developments like climate asset management or other fund managers who are now raising in the hundreds of millions of investment funds for specific nature-based solution large-scale projects. And often, because they don't go around and find turnkey-ready projects, they also invest in the project pipeline. And once you get to that point where the, the investor also invests in the actual project generation, then bigger shifts can start to happen. Because the investor, of course, understands what they would like to see in terms of returns. And once they're involved in the project generation, there will be more projects of a size and scale that are also interesting for mainstream investors. Well, I feel like you have such a you know, unique view because you are you know coming from a corporate where you can sort of deploy your capital in these creative and flexible ways and sort of push others in the ecosystem. But yeah, and I think a lot of what you said really resonates with all of us. So as we draw towards the end of our podcast, we'd love to ask you this question, especially because you are engaged with, as you said, the 14,000 or so Earth Forcers at Salesforce. 
So for folks who want to get involved in this arena and support, what do you encourage them to do and how do you suggest they get involved? I feel like you have unique perspective here. So the first thing I will say might surprise you, but it's hopefully helpful since you're also all working in finance. Anybody who listens to this and wants to get involved, first of all, ask where your pension is invested. Go to your bank or your pension provider and tell them you want a climate-friendly or a nature-supportive pension. And in Denmark, I work with our pension here is with an organization called PFR, and they have an option that's called Climate Plus. All the money is invested in renewable energy or other funds that drive climate action. Why is that so important? Because if we change finance, we change everything else. So as an individual, that's one of the most important things you can do. And it sounds sort of counterintuitive because we all want to go out there and plant trees. That is also important. And we can also do that. You can participate in or donate to a restoration project close to you. We list a lot of them, for example, on the Plant for the Planet website. We also encourage all our staff to donate and then match their donations. For everybody who donates in Salesforce, we match what they spend. And we've reached almost 700 million of cumulative philanthropy giving this year. And the third thing that everybody can do is to look at their diet and what and how they eat. I'm not advocating here that everybody becomes a vegan, although that could be useful, but Look at where your food comes from. Who is your farmer? How far away do you buy your food? How can you support local regenerative farming? How can you purchase meat, for example, from regenerative agriculture? Because cows can play a role in restoring natural ecosystems. How do you limit the carbon footprint and the nature footprint of your diet? So these three things are something that everybody can do, of course, in addition to voting for the right people in power to ensure that we have the right governance for these defining challenges of our time. Amazing. I think some of the most creative responses we've heard so far to this question. And that brings us to the close of our conversation today and a very fun ending section of rapid fire questions in the lightning round. Are you ready? Sure. All right. First question is, what is your favorite carbon sink? Peatlands. Massively fascinating ecosystems. Hard to argue with that. What is your favorite book? Recently, we read Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmer, a great collection of short stories that will change your perspective of the natural world. A wonderful recommendation that we will link in the show notes. If you had a magic wand, what would you change to scale natural climate pollutions? I would make it mandatory that the world invests at least 1% of GDP annually back into nature. I think we're on a track to get there, but it needs to happen much faster. Love it. What gives you hope? Things like the EU nature restoration law and that despite a large organized campaign against it by the agrochemical lobby, it was passed by the parliament. And finally, what is your prediction for the biggest natural climate pollution headline of 2023? Or what do you hope to see in the headlines? World reaches peak emissions and invests in global forest restoration. Love it. We'll be reading that article for sure. Thank you so much, Tim. This has been such a good conversation. Thank you for your time and some especially creative answers today. It's been really wonderful having you with us on Solving Climate Naturally. Well, it's my pleasure.
Thank you for joining today's episode of Solving Climate Naturally. Check out our website, solvingclimatenaturally.com, to see this episode's show notes, explore resources, and learn about upcoming episodes. Let us know what you think by connecting with us via email or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.